welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome back to the Proper Mental Podcast. This is episode 82, and my guest this week is Gary Mansfield, who is an artist, a curator, and the host of the Ministry of Arts podcast. And in his early 20s, Gary was sentenced to 14 years in prison after £4.2 million worth of heroin was planted in the boot of his car. He served seven years of that sentence, and during his time he discovered art and a passion for creativity that would change his life. While in prison, he contacted many very well-known artists, and most of them got back to him. And they kind of mentored him through his time in prison and his journey to becoming an artist. And it was actually the day he left prison was the same day that he started at university doing a fine arts degree. And he's now a well-known and respected artist who uses art and his time to represent marginalised groups and shine a light on social justice issues. It's a big conversation. It's a wonderful conversation. And Gary is a wonderful man. He takes me through his journey as a young lad, getting up to mischief and how that mischief turned into bigger crimes, which ultimately led him to go into prison, ironically for the one crime that he didn't commit. And we chat about that journey. You know, Gary knew who had set him up and he decided not to say anything. And he just had to accept that he was going to do his time. And we talk about acceptance a lot. We talk about making peace and moving on. We talk about mental health in prison and the prison system. We talk about compassion and we talk about creativity. We also talk about using art to inspire change and to really get people thinking about things differently. And it was a a joy to sit down with Gary and have this chat. At one point, Gary talks about this kind of little method that he came up with to look after his own mental health, but more to look after the mental health of some of the inmates around him. And that's just beautiful. The idea that he was going around prison doing this sort of thing is just absolutely wonderful. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Towards the end of the conversation, Gary talks a lot about his own art and some of the things that he's been up to. And you'll hear in the recording, when Gary talks about art, he lights up. Like his passion just spills out of him. He can't contain it. And I really, I came away from speaking to him. I was like, right, I'm going to get into art and I'm going to start like making stuff and painting stuff. And, you know, it's got me really, um, got me started and got me thinking on a couple of little projects, which I uh, may or may not ever mention again. But Gary's just that type of bloke. He has that effect on people. I'd highly recommend his podcast. It's called The Ministry of Arts. There's 170 something episodes out there as this is going out. And I know very little about art, but I still like to listen to Gary's podcast. He's just got such a lovely way about him that I think his guests just feel so comfortable with him. He gets really, really good conversations on the go. And he's just a lovely bloke to listen to, to be honest. I'd highly recommend it. And whether you have an interest in art or not, there's a couple of guests that have crossed over that have been on both with me and with Gary. So if that's of any interest to you, you could go back through, well, I suppose either of our back catalogues, really. But I've done an episode with Stevie Georgina who is an artist and a crochet vlogger who talks a lot about mental health and how she crocheted her way back to wellness. I've also spoken to Ben Wakeling, who's another well-known artist in his own right, who does stuff within the mental health space in the NHS. 
And Nick Hogben has been on with both of us. Nick, who's the host of the Mouth for Manliness podcast, which is another one of my favourite pods, but he also creates under the name Loveless Artist. All of those are wonderful conversations, and I'd highly recommend you go and give him a listen. You can get Gary's podcast absolutely everywhere. If you chuck his name into Google, it'll bring up all sorts of places where you can have a look at his art. And if you want to follow him on social media, it's at MizogArt for his own page, and his podcast page is at Ministry of Arts Org. As ever, if you want to get hold of me, the best way is via email, and you can do that at propermentalpodcast.com. There's a link in the episode notes to buy me a coffee. We can buy me a virtual coffee to help keep this podcast ticking over and support it financially. And the best way to support the podcast is to rate, to review, to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on now. Screenshot it, pop it on your stories, tag me in it, tag the guest in it. Spread the word, tell your mum, tell your nan. The more ears we can get this into, the more difference we can make. That being said, this is episode 82 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Gary Mansfield. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Gary Mansfield. How are you, mate? Hiya. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm really, really good. How's things with you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. It's a bit of a worse day today than it was yesterday. Insofar as the weather. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's, um, yeah, it's cool, mate. I've been looking forward to this so much. Really looking forward to meeting you. I feel like we've got so many podcast friends in common, mate. It's, yeah, there's, uh, there's a few triangles going on, aren't there? Yeah, that's it. So like, I feel we've turned one of them triangles into coming full circle today, mate. So it's a, <laughs> oh, an, an absolute pleasure. Yeah. I, w- I wanted to start, Gary. Um, I, try, I always try when I'm speaking to someone, I always try and like... Um, take them somewhere like a little bit different right I always think like, yeah. well if they've spoke about this before I'm going to do something different but with you it was too hard to resist doing the whole <laughs> let's start at the beginning <laughs> okay. stuff you know but I, I thought like before we get into that one thing I just thought about half an hour ago before I, I logged on was do you ever get bored of telling your story mate do you ever get like oh here we go again uh n- not really because there's a lot of people that learn from what I say hopefully anyway um, and being an ex-prisoner and sort of, in a way, not directly, but indirectly championing people who are in prison and made a mistake, you know, and, and possibly want to change their life. I feel like I'm representing them in a way, you know. So if people see this ex-criminal, ex-prisoner doing good, speaking good, you know, it, it might make them think different about, you know, the, the person that they don't know, you know, who's who's got a criminal record, you know. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I suppose for a lot of people as well, it's like seeing seeing what's possible. Some people think they can't change and there is yeah. their situation is their situation. And there's something really empowering about someone saying, oh, no, like you totally can. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So let's do exactly that, mate. Did um like this, you know, your life of, life of crime, did that come in at an early age, did it, mate? Or how did, uh, uh, how did this well, get going? it all started off, um, it, it was sort of, it, it started off, probably round about that being mischievous as a kid on a council estate, you know, knock down ginger and that sort of thing. Um, and, and every estate had what we used to call a Hitler, where you'd sort of like knock on his door and he's the one who'd be going nuts at you, you know. So, um, yeah, it was it was that thrill of the chase or being chased, getting into trouble. You know, that was always 
I, I found that quite fun. Even if I got caught or captured, the consequences sort of didn't outweigh the 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 sort of vibe you felt while it was happening, you know? Yeah. And then one time when we was being mischievous, like, you know, going across some um, garage roofs, the old asbestos roofs. Um, yeah. One of my mates just fell through the garage and, you know, one minute he was there, one minute he was gone, you know, and um, he stood on some boxes to try and get out this garage as we're leaning over to try and pull him up. And we was only sort of like, I don't know, 13 or something at the time. And, um, he said that there's this big boxing bag, like big punch bag in there. So we said, we'll pull it out. And it was brand new. And there was like loads of other boxes in there. So I said, like, what's in there? And there was all these other bits and pieces. It turns out we'd sort of fell through the roof of a like another criminal's lockup, you know, all of this. Like, so we ended up stealing some of this, um, of this stolen goods, you know. Um, and we only like took it for ourselves, but then someone went, oh, I'll buy those off you, and I'll buy these off you. And someone had the, this great big leather punch bag that we probably sold for a fiver and was, you know, more than likely worth about 200, you know. But that's that was the problem. We discovered that this mischief you could earn from. And then that was the, yeah, that was the slippery slope. Then we was looking, looking at crimes to commit to earn money, you know, and, and that's just, that was the, how easy it is to slip, step on that rung of the of the criminal ladder, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose as well at a young age, probably the idea of like not having to go and do a, an apprenticeship or a nine to five or whatever, that's like, you know, we all want to get out of that when we're a kid, right? That's kind of the dream. Yeah, well, fast forward a few years and when, when we'd left school, um, but, you know, at, at the time, I remember my friend saying that he was earning £121 a week and, you know, was being really chuffed with it. And I was like, well, you're giving like 20% of that to the government and I'm earning sort of around about the same as you and keeping it all to myself. And I haven't got to get up at six in the morning, you know. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm sort of more or less getting in at six in the morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, yeah, that was that was the attitude that I had, and and that stayed in me for years and years. That that not paying, like, or not the fact that I wasn't giving twenty percent away of my wages, that stayed in me for so so long. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I suppose the, there's the lifestyle that comes with it, right? So you're earning a few extra quids, and you don't have to get up at six in the morning, so you can kind of like let loose a little bit, right? Yeah, and it was. I mean, there was a lot of fun. I, you know, I'm a big guy, and I've always, you know, we always used to get into scraps and that. And later on in life, I ended up using my size to my advantage insofar as um, I ended up being a debt collector, doorman, bodyguard, you know, anything that, a, you know, a big ugly bloke, you know, would do with his brawn rather than his brain, you know, easy money. Yeah, sure. Was, was the kind of the thing about being nicked, was that always there? Was it just kind of like, you know getting caught, maybe doing some time, was that always just part of the part of the deal? Or Well, I, I, it, you never really thought about it, although it was part of your daily life. But I suppose it's like a scaffolder, knowing that one day he could fall off the scaffold. You know, you don't think about it consciously all the time. You just yeah. know it's a, a hazard that could happen, and you do your best for it not to happen, you know? Yeah, sure. So like, so when it happened to you, mate, how did that, how did that come about? What the... F the first time I got arrested or when I got arrested for the big one? Either or. Let's go for the big one, mate. Let's. No, let's why not? Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd, by this point in my mid-20s, for a few years, 
maybe since just before I left school, I'd been um, selling fake clothing. Um, you know, like the Lacoste and whatever, whatever. Um, and I'd, I'd gone quite the way up the ladder in that. I'd got to the point where um, if I got caught with maybe a, a transit looting full of it, I would have probably just gone to court and got possibly up to £500 fine. Whereas if I would have gone one more rung up the ladder, then I would have got prison time, you know. Um, and, yeah, so I knew that I could stop there. I was earning a, a good wage. And there was relatively small amount of, um, of trouble if I would have got arrested, you know. Um, and for some time, I'd been buying the clothing off of this, this new guy, um, this new supplier, manufacturer. And um, I was going to Liverpool one time and he was aware of that. And he asked if I'd drop some of these labels off to his guys in Birmingham who were stitching the labels on to the outside of the, of the clothing, you know. At this time, they was um, like labels that, that got put on. The crocodile, for instance, would be stitched on rather than now it's embroidered in, you know. Mm. Um, and I'd seen them, you know, dozens of times before. Um, so I said, yeah, you know, he was going to give me a, a few hundred quid and I was just diverting off the M1, as it were, you know. Um, yeah, so I picked him up one Saturday morning um, and just as I'm reversing out of the parking space of this, it was a big lorry park I was in, a, a, a calf there, you know, a truck stop. And as I'm reversing out of this gravel driving space, behind me in the wing mirror, uh, in the, sorry, in the rear view mirror, I saw this. A Vauxhall Cavalier being chased by a police van and um, yeah as I put my head over my shoulder to sort of turn out of this parking space I saw that this Cavalier had come sort of skidding into the to the car park like any action film you know with the arse end of the of the car sort of skidding away you know in a big cloud of dust and behind it was this um, police van. Now you've got to bear in mind that what I'm going to tell you next for the next minute or so happened in probably five seconds, you know, or, or possibly not even that. So this car's coming towards the, the cafe and inside it, I saw the first of all, that the driver was wearing a shirt and tie. And in an instant, I thought, well, that's a bit odd for, you know, being chased by a, by a police van was this well-dressed criminal, you know, but then beside him was a, a blonde lady who was a, I don't know, maybe about 35 years of age. And she had a, a, a blouse on as well, you know, and smartly dressed. And before the car even pulled up, their door was open and she was like half climbing out, you know. And they've come running over, or she, sorry, she has come running over to me, shouting and screaming. And I thought, fucking hell, don't say you're going to try and sort of hijack my car to get away from the old bill. You know, that's not going to happen. And um, But it was all very confusing because of all these things that were happening that aren't, that shouldn't be happening, you know? Yeah, yeah. And she's, yeah, as I say, she's shouting all in. And when she was about maybe, I don't know, possibly two feet away from my car, all of a sudden, bang, the back window's gone through and it's just letting noise and dust and, and they were shouting and screaming and, excuse me, <coughs> they were shouting and screaming and you could hear the helicopter and these cars going and it was just a, a sort of uh, uh, an assault on my senses, you know, and then, but then all of a sudden my doors flung open and still this woman wasn't at me yet. And I'm being dragged out of the car. 
So I've stood up next to the car. I've put my hands in the air. Um, and one of the coppers has kicked my left foot away. And I've gone down and I've hit my chin on the, on the roof of the car. And you get them little um, flashes of like, you know, literally seeing stars, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, it wasn't the first time I've been hit on the chin. But I've, um, I've sort of spun around and pulled my fist back to, to give the copper a, a clump, you know. But then there was a guy behind him or, or just to his left over to my right. He was just pointing this gun at me going, go on, go on, go on. And I was like, fucking hell, they're going to kill me here, you know. So I just turned around and, you know, got thrown about a little bit as you did back in them days, you know, and got sat in the back of the police car with, um, or sat in the back of that Vauxhall that was being chased because it turns out to be they were customs officers, you know. And, um, and that didn't even seem strange. It was my first interaction with customs officers during an arrest. You know, I'd been arrested many times previously. But it sort of fell in with what I was dealing with because um, clothes isn't so much, uh, counterfeit clothes isn't so much a criminal thing. It's more of a sort of copyright. And it's a, it's a little grey area in the law, which is why I sort of sailed around in it for so long. Um, so, yeah, I'm in the back of the motor and they're pulling out these two big bags that I'd previously put in, you know, because I'd met, this is, sorry, this is the bit that I'd missed out. I'd met one guy, put the two big bags of labels in the boot of my car and then reversed out of that space. Um, so I'm seeing them pull out these two big holdalls and I was thinking they're going to feel such twats when they realise that they've got a helicopter, loads of armed police, put me back window through and arrested me for like, what was probably about 300 quid's worth of clothing labels, you know? So I'm sitting there all smug in the back of the police car and they've, they're opening them up and they've put some of them out on the ground. And I'd seen them before and they was always, they always reminded me of, you know, the old um, camera, um, uh, the film uh, trays mm. that they have, like big round. Yeah, ones. yeah. So I'd always seen them like that before, but these ones were square or rectangular. They, it reminded me instantly of of what was an old phone book, you know. So it was possibly smaller than A4 size, you know. But they're putting these down on the ground, and still, I, I just thought that's a bit odd, but didn't think any more of it because it was just labels. And then uh, we get down, we get down to Grace Police Station. They'd asked me my name and address already in the car, and I told them. Um, yeah, got down to Grace Police Station, and I, they've just taken the cuffs off me. And this lady that I previously mentioned was standing next to me, and to the custody sergeant, she said, "This is Gary Mansfield. He's being charged with being knowingly involved in the importation of Class A drugs, namely diamorphine." Now, as worldly wise as I were at that time, I'd had a joint when I was 15, didn't like it. Um, cocaine was everywhere, never had a line. Um, I've been around the uh, dance scene, the rave scene since it started, never had a pill. Drugs weren't my cup of tea, you know. And um, I've, I've definitely never been around fucking heroin, that's for sure. And um, I've just looked around it and I went, what's diamorphine? And because of the word morphine, I, I knew it was something they used in hospital. So I thought, oh, that's, you know, whatever it is, it's not that bad. And then she went, it's heroin. And I, I turned around to her and I went, what do you mean fucking heroin? And then I was going, heroin, fucking heroin. 
And during all of this, so I've lost my rag again, and I've got these coppers who are around me telling me to calm down a bit. And she's looked at the desk sergeant, and then she's, well, she, sorry, she's looked at me, and then she's looked at the desk sergeant. She went, he don't know. And you could see on her face that she sort of believed me, if you like. But at this point, the gate had gone again, and they're bringing in the second person they've arrested, who was the one who was an in-between between me and this Sid I was getting the clothing off. And uh, I've looked around to him, and bearing in mind they've just taken my um, cuffs off, I've looked around to him who's still handcuffed, and that's it, I wanted to just sort of rip his throat out, you know? So I've just went running over towards him. His copper has sort of jumped in front of him to protect him from me. I'm now screaming like a banshee, you know, trying to get to him. And I've always said that, you know, I was running towards him and I've always said it was like when you're in a swimming pool and you're playing with your mates and you've got that bit of resistance against your body. And um, that resistance was like two or three coppers jumping on me, trying to sort of stop me, you know. And each time I can, um, I can still remember each time they're jumping on me, it's making me slower and slower. It was, it was like a buffalo being attacked by the lionesses on, a, on an Attenborough programme, you know. And I'm slowly, you know, I never got to him, which was, you know, a result for him, really. Um, but, yeah, they sort of jumped on me and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, yeah, they jumped on me, uh, put me in a cell, and, uh, yeah, that was it, really. And that was it? Yeah. Wow. That's uh, that's heavy, Gaz. That's really heavy. Yeah, it's, eh? not, it's not good, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And then how, how long until you were sentenced after that, mate? It was... About a year that happened in July on July the second ninety four, and then it was uh, ninety five. I think it was like October ninety five that I um, that I got sentenced, and I, I went I went in court. I told for the first time, I got up in the dock and spoke and told the truth. Normally, I'm giving some bit of spill, you know, trying to get out of it, trying my best. But this time I went um, not guilty, told them exactly what happened. Although I didn't point the people out, I told them the scenario, you know, like everything I just told you other than the names, you know. And uh, and I thought, well, I, I'm, for once I'm putting my my life in the, in the judicial system, you know, and fucking hell, it come and smacks me around the arse, you know. Um, and I know if, if anyone's listening, they're going to go, well, you know, you, you as a criminal, and I totally agree with you. Um, I'm moaning about them giving me heroin, but, um, and, and it was 4.2 million pounds worth as well. It wasn't just a little bag of it. It was 50 kilos. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've never really moaned about that as such, because I'm well aware that if I didn't step onto that criminal ladder, I wouldn't have fallen off of it, you know, and... And also, the, the months previous, um, I could have been arrested several times for something not quite as heavy as that, but would have got me a couple of years in prison, you know. Yeah, um, sure. And, yeah, I, I got found guilty. Um, and I thought I'd be getting 18 years because it was, you know, such a big amount. And the judge did give me the minimum, which was 14 years. Yeah, mate. I kind of, like... I've been thinking about that that part of your story a lot and how I kind of related it to the to the mental health conversation mm. is that there's this kind of thing around mental health 
about acceptance. And sometimes one of the most powerful things you can do is just accept what you're going through. Yeah. And like, so for in my own journey for a long time, I didn't want to accept what was happening to me because I didn't want it to happen. Yeah. And I kind of fought against it. And it was only when I started, when I sort of dealt with the fact that I was ill, that yeah. I could then start to kind of function in a, in a different way. And that kind of reminded me of, of your story because there must've been a point where the, the rage over the, the setup and the, you know, the in, injustice of it. And then, but you still got to do your time, right? Yeah. So was there a point where you just had to kind of just accept that? Yeah. Well, throughout my life, um, you know, I was, I was getting into some really big trouble. You know, I wasn't just doing fake clothing. I was doing, as I mentioned, debt collecting by the security firm. There was, you know, a lot going on. And I'd always sort of never thought about anything. You know, problems would come to me. I'd either deal with them or just shun them away. Um and yeah, mum, I'd never sort of looked at my mental health, but the time when I was in court and they asked me if this Sid was in the courtroom, like this is before I got found guilty, he's looked at me, this Sid, because he was arrested as well and he's over in, in the dock as I'm, I'm standing there giving um, my side of the story, as it were. They've asked if Sid's in the building, in the courtroom, and I knew at that point, if I said he's over there, it would have taken my sentence in a whole new direction, you know? Um, and if I said, no, he's not, then I would have sealed my own fate and I was getting myself found guilty. But when they asked that question, I looked over to him and he put his head down and um, I said, no, he's not in the building. And he's looked up, but he didn't look at me, he looked over at his family and done a little fist pump, you know, a pull down. And yeah, yeah. And I just thought, you fucking arsehole, I've just sailed myself down the river and you can't even acknowledge me. And that was that was the treacherous bit that that sort of started the fire within. And from then, like you just mentioned, once I got weighed off, um, sentenced, and started my sentence, and I got a 14-year sentence, and I knew that I had to do seven. And I'd already done a little over a year. So I had about six years left. Um, and I could say for the next at least year, possibly even 18 months. Every single day I was screwing about that Sid and the other guy that um, introduced me to him because they was both a party in it, I found out later on. And I was just thinking, when I get out, what I'm, how I'm going to kidnap them, what I'm going to do to them, and then where they're going to end up so they wouldn't get found. And I'd never really thought to that extent about people before. I'd, before I'd thought he's going to get a good idea, you know, he's going to get a clump for whatever he done. I've never thought along the lines of that, you know. And and when you when I look back, at it, it's a it's a bit of a fucking scary thing to be thinking, and it's a bit of a psychotic thing to be thinking because I didn't just think it every now and then. Without exaggeration, it was every single night. I'd be laying in bed. It was all, it was almost like a fucking nursery rhyme that'd send me off to sleep um, with the same scenario going over and over and over in my head. And then a while later, a friend of mine, Kenny, um, turned up at the prison. I didn't know he was coming. He just sort of turned up and it's nice to have mates visit. <laughs> but uh, I mean, he, he turned up as a prisoner, not as a visitor. And um yeah, he sort of, you know, said, oh, how are you? And, you know, we got talking and a few days in, 
he said about the guys who stitched me up. And, um, it, you know, because it was well versed outside that mm-hmm. anyone who knew me, they're like, fucking hell, drugs, you know what I mean? And, um, yeah, he went, oh, he went, oh, I wouldn't like to be in their shoes when you get out. And then I went, I pushed my door to, because we were sitting in my cell. I pushed my door to, and I went, we've said, this is what's going to happen. And I leaned in and I started telling him, like narrating this fucking psychotic sequence that I had in my head. And my mate Kenny was, I'd always thought he was a bit too violent outside. You know, his, his fuse was too short. And as I'm telling him this, I can, I can still see him now. He's sort of like pulling away from me a little bit. And then he's just lent in and he went, gal, mate, you've got to fucking stop. He went, your eyes looks like you want to kill me. And I've never been, I've always been quite a happy and jovial bloke. You know, I've never sort of been, I'm not trying to make myself out that I was some sort of rough diamond and all that sort of thing, but I was never that sort of person. And then he was quite concerned about me because he was always a mindful person. He was, he was a mindful nutter, you know. He, um, he used to do yoga and, you know, he'd do stuff like that, but he was still ultra-violent. It was quite weird. But, um, yeah, he said, he was going, Gal, you've got another five years in front of your six years. You know, this is going to, you, you're going to have, have a really hard bit of bird to have to do if you're thinking like that every single night. And, um it was that that resonated with me. And then when it came to me discovering art in prison and wanting to become an artist, I was still thinking this, because this was about a year later, I was still thinking these thoughts. But I thought, well, if I want to change my life and I want to become an artist, what's the point in me going to find these people? And Because it's, it's fucking counterproductive, you know? I'm going to end up back in jail again after I've done this seven years. Found discovered art, which by this point I'd fallen in love with. Uh, sorry, I'd fallen in love with. Wanted to become an artist, and I already had loads of artists, friends of sorts, writing to me while I was in prison. And then I just thought, well, I, I can't change my life and bring all this fucking old baggage with me. You know, these sackfuls of hate, because I'm going into a really liberal world, and hate isn't welcome. You know. And um, not that I, I knew that at the time, but I just thought, like, this new world I'm going in, I don't need to be bringing all this shit with me, you know. And uh, and then just one day I was like, ah, fuck them. And then, bang, as quick as it come, it went, you know. And, 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 and that's probably because I had this brighter path on my left that was being paved for me, if you like, you know, I'd already got my mindset to be in this new world and leave the old one behind. So it, it was made easier because of that, you know? Yeah, sure. But like, I suppose make, just making that, I suppose you can't have both, right? And that no. comes down to. Well, you that. can, but that's a really scary person, isn't it? Mm. You know, I yeah. mean, if, if you're a criminal, if, or if you're a known criminal and you're very violent, that's you know that's what you expect isn't it you know that comes with the with the territory yeah if you're this very liberal artist making artwork that's empathetic and you know of a night you're going out stalking the person that put you into prison with a shovel and a bag of lime that's not gonna <laughs> fucking help is it you know no it's not gonna yeah not gonna last for long yeah, yeah that's the thing like bad movies are made of isn't it yeah very much so mate yeah very much so yeah it's just that 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 it's that acceptance again right it's just like 
again, for me, again, slightly different tangent. I had to accept certain things. I had to accept that I couldn't drink anymore that that had to go. And because of that, then like certain social aspects of my life went and certain people I used to knock around with had to go. And there's all these different things that I clung onto for so long and I just carried it around. And as soon as I put them down, things got easier. It was not straight away. And the process wasn't easy, but over time, you kind of think like, oh, right, that's, that's gone. And I can leave it. And I can kind of like, you know, open my eyes to, to something, something. I've always said that that life of crime is definitely an addiction like drugs, alcohol, tobacco, you know, because everyone that I knew, everyone I knew was a criminal. And if they wasn't a criminal, they were the ones that was okay with the ones committing it. Like, you know, they would buy cheap stuff off you. If it was, you know, come Christmas, they'd be buying the, the stolen stuff, knowing it was stolen because it was a third of the price or half price, you know. Um, yeah, so everyone was like that. Everyone was okay or au fait with, with uh, crime itself. And where was I going with that? Sorry. Oh, yeah, every, so everyone I knew was, was into crime or a criminal. Every day when I got up, I'd already have a list, like you would, you know, a to-do list. Right, today I'm going to meet so-and-so to buy some of this off of him and sell some of that to him. Then I'm going to go and meet so-and-so to see if he's got any of this stuff. And it was just all crime, crime, crime. And on the way, I'm going to go and collect that, you know, free grain that someone owes someone else. And, you know, I'll have a, a sort of knuckle duster in the car just in case there's a couple of them, you know. And and it, But that was run of the mill. You know, it was absolute standard. And, and when you go out now, or when I go out now, I'll tap my left pocket, see if my wallet's in there, tap my right pocket, see if my phone's in there. And I'm always tapping my pockets and I don't notice it until I've not got my phone or wallet, right? But that's how I used to be before. It'd be wallet, fags, I don't smoke anymore, flick knife or knuckle duster or whatever weapon it was that was in one of my pockets. But that was that was as standard as tapping my wallet and phones to see if they're in my pocket. And all night long, I'd be tapping the phone, uh, the pocket that had the weapon in it just making making sure it's still there, but not realising that I was doing it. And looking back, that is fucking bonkers, isn't it? You know, that it's that acceptable. Because it's not acceptable to me anymore. Yeah. But yeah. it was every day then, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely just the, the normality of that environment, right? Yeah. It's just, yeah. Very and and like the, the likes of, with the prison service at the moment, um, I'm, I know the world's in dire straits, but even before the pandemic, um, you know, like you take these lads off the streets and not all of the, the lads in jail uh, would were like me. I was a professional career criminal. Not all of them are that. You know, you have the drug dealers on the streets, which weren't so prolific back in the in the early 90s, you know. Um, fucking hell, then you had to go looking for one. Now they're like, you know, you bump into them in the street all the time, you know. But anyway, a lot of them young lads are getting forced into that by the ones above. You know, and they're, they're having a fucking drug deal at, at the age of 11 because the ones above know that they're not going to get arrested. So they're just using them as cannon fodder. But then they see the benefits of that. There's no work around where they live. And why, again, like my old way, why go to work for and graft, you know, graft your bollocks off for £100 a day 
when you can go and earn £200 by standing on the corner. The upsides of, or the downsides of that now, you're not just going to have police or customs come to arrest you anymore. You're going to have the gang from the other side of the estate come along and shove a fucking sword through your body, you know, like a kebab. Mm. That's the downside to it now. And so because they've got the the, the threat of a, a big weapon coming towards them, not like my little flick knife or knuckle duster, to counteract their, what's coming for them, they carry the same as well. So all of a sudden it's like fucking Star Wars where they've got their, you know, their big swords, you know. And yeah, they, they, I'm, I'm not saying they're all angels and being forced to do it, but it's the environment they grow up in. And when they get put in prison, there's no courses in there. I know they, the government say, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that. There's fuck all going on in there. You go in there, you join a bigger gang, come out and you're part of a bigger thing. But that's the problem is, you know, they're putting these young lads back out with fuck all. They're giving them 45 quid when they get out of jail. And then that's like, here's 45 quid. That's hardly the foundation for the rest of your life. All that is, is if, if they're a good-minded person, that's one, one night, possibly two in a hostel. On day three, you're on the street. And when you're on the street, after a couple of days, you know, and you're starving hungry, you know, sleeping in a fucking piss puddle every night, what are you going to do? You know, and, and it's not necessarily down to you that, that you go and shoplift or whatever it is they do. And again, mm. I'm not saying that every criminal is a victim, but it's not just as clear cut as, as we think it is. And I was, I was lucky to have this new world saying like, you know, the, the art world saying, Oh, we want people like you, you know? Yeah. And at the time it was a very punk art world with the likes of, you know, Gavin Turk, Sarah Lucas, Tracy Emin, all those people that are like A-list era artists. Now they were the ones writing to me while I was away when I discovered art. So it was easy for me. I still had this structure, this family, if you like, to come out to, whereas before it would have been the criminal world. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, it was fucking good times I was having. There was lots of money, lots of fun, lots of excitement, lots of women, and some bloody good laughs. And, all right, there were some quite horrific fights as well. But if you're the winner, they were good fights. You know, if... if and. You know, not not many of us speak about the losses, but my I probably had slightly more wins than I had losses. But I'm not one of those who give it the big and, and you know as if I've always taken on ten men and you know <laughs> stood there with my hands on my hips at the end of it with my foot on a pile of bodies. You know, <laughs> um, no, a lot of the time I was uh, I was laying on that pile of bodies for sure. Uh, but either way, it was an exciting it was an exciting life. Yeah. Turn away now. I've got this new world with a structure. You know, with a with a hierarchy somewhere to aim for, but this time for good. You know. Yeah, I mean, one of like what you've just saying there about the the environmental factors. You know, one of my favourite sayings, and I must say it every other episode is, you can't heal in the same environment that made you sick. Yeah. So if exactly. you're, do you know what I mean? If if that's yeah. where like if that's the, the life that you are in and then you go away for whatever reason and you come spat back out exactly where you were, of course, nothing's going to change. Yeah. Right. If, of course, there's nothing there to, to change. Yeah. You know? I mean, I don't, I don't want to turn this into a, a prison episode by any means, but <clears throat> mental health is fucking rife in there. It's as rife as the drugs and violence. Honestly, they're all on the same path and there's nothing to help anyone in there with the drugs. There's nothing to help anyone in there with the violence and there's nothing to help anyone in there with a mental health. And 
I mean, there is little bits where you can go and get help, but they're just, you go and have a session for like half an hour and then throw you back in the circus, you know? It's it's a hard, it's so, so hard. And, you know, that's why there's so, so much, um, so little rehabilitative um, results is because they're, again, they're sending people out exactly the same as what they come in. Yeah, yeah, but, definitely. Yeah, as far as mental health is concerned, since they shut down, uh, oh, you know, Lady Baroness Maggie, bless her. Since that thing shut down the um, the mental homes, um, and and put in care in the community, that the prisons just just become those um, secure units, you know. And I've I've mentioned a couple of times you can only have care in the community if the fucking community cares, you know. When they're having these. Um, you know, dozens and dozens of, of people who need treatment and looking after put out on the streets. You know, we don't know how to deal with, to us, to, to the innocent person, they're just the nutter walking along the street sort of shouting, shouting at people, you know. Yeah. We don't understand them. They shouldn't be here I and mean, they definitely shouldn't be in bloody prison. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, was it like discovering art and being able to kind of access that creative part of you? Did that kind of look after your mental health going through the rest of your sentence? Oh, like you wouldn't believe. And, and the thing is, because I've got quite an addictive nature. So once I saw how pleasing it was to create something, and I, I wasn't arty before, I had no artistic talent, and I've got the talent that we've all got, you know, and, and you've only got to go and find it if you've got the time or the know-how, you know. And I got shown how to discover this talent within and I got a lot of pleasure from creating something and and I say to people now you know just if you're feeling a little bit down just doodle just write a poem you know try and make a song if, if you can play the guitar just have a do a little something whatever it is to create something mentally build something you know or, or physically build something and you always get a little ray of sunshine at the end of it you know a little bit of self-approval because most of the time when people are are in a, a bit of a state mentally they can't see much positive about themselves you know and then when you're creating something and it you know most of the time it will turn out a bit better than you're expecting you're like oh, I weren't too bad at that well that's that's the feeling I used to get you know and then because I was I saw myself as a person who could never be an artist because an artist is a, I saw them as a sort of white middle-class, well-educated man who spoke like a poet, you know, and I was this fat, ugly bloke from a council estate who spoke like Arthur Mullard or Del Boy, you know, and they didn't turn up in the art world. So I didn't think I could be an artist until these artists that I was writing to and that, you know, or corresponding with, when they started saying we need people like you in the art world, I was like, well, I better catch up a bit then. And so I can qualify when I get released in like four or five years time. So that was it. I, I'd got my new little addiction. And instead of every day going to bed, thinking about what I can do to, to Sid, now I'm thinking what I can do with that painting tomorrow. And that was every single night, you know, when I'm getting up in the morning, right, where's, where's me, me pencils, me brushes, well, whatever, you know, down in the art class, just producing, producing. And I'd, 
And I wish I had this when I was a fucking kid at school because we, we had to do this course. And it would, if it said like, you know, produce 10 drawings over five minutes, um, you know, do like really quick drawings. I'd try and do 12 drawings in five minutes and make them better than anyone else's. You know, I'd always be trying to beat the person, but it wasn't for me to try and beat them. It was for me to try and push myself, you know, not that I knew that at the time, but that's what I was doing. If it says do this, I'd try and do something bigger and better and sometimes to stupid extents. You know, if we had to do a, a colour wheel, for instance, I'd do, I'd end up doing like 20 colour wheels on, an, on like A1 paper and doing them all over the weekend when it was like a little 10 minute, 10 minute thing. So I would understand colour and I'd push myself and push myself because the thing is, I had the time which is what you don't have out here. You've got to try and live your life, you know, going to work, paying the bills, cleaning your house. I had none of that shit while I was in there. You know, I got my meals given to me. Um, you know, I, I literally got told when I could go to the toilet pretty much, you know. So I had a routine in place that I didn't have to uphold. I only just had to adhere to, you know. And everything else was just time. So I was reading, writing, drawing, trying to be better. And yeah, if I would have had that same attitude when I was at school, who knows, you know? Yeah. It's funny how it works out, isn't it? You know, that that thing, that urge, that whatever it was, yeah. you know, it was just, it kind of had to happen then by the sound of things. Yeah. And that's that's when it happens. Well, in there, there's no, you don't, there's not much fucking empathy. You know, it's like a an empathy vacuum in there. And if you see someone who's, there's loads of depression about, and you do have a lot of people, there's, not all criminals are just horrible, nasty people, you know. When when you see someone, a, a friend or even just someone you know who's going in a bad, you can see them going in a dark place. People do sort of rally round, not collect, not collectively, they do it themselves, but you do see a lot of people going in and trying to sort of help. But because it's a confined environment, when they get to a certain point of depression or darkness, it does become sort of contagious you know mm. in there so you do at a point you have to pull away otherwise you go down with them and 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 it, it is like that I know it sounds a bit odd saying it but that's exactly how it is and I saw so many people doing it you hear and see so many attempts to take their own life because of it and it's just on a bonkers scale because out here you may hear once a year that someone you know or a friend of a friend has taken their own life because of, well, because of whatever reason, whatever's mm. made them do it. In there, it's sort of like, I don't know, possibly in one prison every couple of months, someone takes their life at least once, once a fortnight, possibly. Someone's tried to take their life. Mm. And I was just like, fucking hell, because none of the problems are a problem most of the time. You know, it's 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 stuff that, that hasn't happened yet or or that won't even happen or something that's done and they can't change that is that's the thing that's eating away at them. And and and, and me, it happened to me as well. But after a lot of looking in the mirror and soul searching, I come away from being that violent criminal to being, well, whatever this is I am today. But I know it's definitely a a decent person and a, a quite a, a, a large reflection on what it used to be. But even though when I was committing crime, like violent crime, this is, 
I'd come away. I wouldn't come away going, oh, he fucking deserved it and, you know, sort of justify everything I've done. A lot of the time I'd come away feeling fucking bad for what I'd just done. Even if I thought the person deserved it, even if he was like a, a fucking rapist or a, you know, a child molester or whatever he'd done. It didn't fucking sit well with me. So I always knew that it weren't me completely. You know, it was just this veneer of trying to look like a tough guy and a hard man and that sort of thing. And I knew that deep down, if it, it if I was feeling like that when I walked away, then I wasn't a bad person. There was this like sort of nice bloke inside me crying for help, you know. So I always knew there was a nice person inside me. And so many friends I used to have, like female friends, when they saw me years later from being, like from when I was young to before I got arrested, they'd be like, how have you turned out like this? You know, you was never this sort of person. You was always the nice caring bloke at the, you know, bunch of loonies, you know. And um, yeah, that, that always sort of sat with me. And it, it, yeah, and it happened in jail as well. When you see people sort of going down that line, even if I didn't know them, you know, there was a thing in there that if you're in a dark place, just write your problems down on a, in a letter to yourself. Or, you know, if you're having trouble with your other half outside, just write her a letter. Don't necessarily post it, but, you know, it gets all of them thoughts out in a concise way rather than all these scrambled bits yeah, of yeah. like darkness starting about, you know. So I'd done that before and I found it helped me. So I'd tell other people to do that. But the trouble was, if I don't know the person and I can see them going down a dark place, you know, I'd done it a few times and it only worked about three times. And I've, I've done it to people I didn't know, possibly half a dozen or so. But I had quite a good reputation, good, depending on what way you look at it. Uh, I, had a, I had a reputation in jail for being... Even even when I changed to be an artist, not not to fuck with me, you know, I didn't sort of suffer falls gladly, if you like. So I had this little reputation of sorts. But if I saw someone who was going down that dark place, and even if I didn't know them, then I'd sort of go into their cell while the you know the place was open, and after the bit of initial shock, like you know, what's what's he coming in myself for? I'd say, yeah, Ray. Um, I know you're a nice bloke. I don't feel like I can say this to anyone else, but would you be able to help us out with a little problem I've got? I know you're a nice guy. And he's going, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> whatever. Just fuck off, you know. Um, but I'd say like, you know, and I'll, I'll pull a bit of paper out, you know, and like I said, I've just had a letter from the other half and she's on about like, you know, she can't stand this situation anymore. And although we haven't got any kids, and then I'll make up this fucking story about how bad I'm feeling, how dark I am. And then this guy would sort of give me really positive things to do or say, or, you know, like that's the thing about writing out a letter. He would say what he's done or recommended to people before, even though he's in a dark place and not doing it himself, you know. And then at the end of it, I'd, I'd like shake his hand and say, oh, you know, thanks for helping us out. And then I go, no, you ain't going to fucking tell anyone, are you? And he's like, no, no, no. And I go, look, if ever you need anything, you know, because I had, tobacco and phone cards and all that around me you know I said ever you need anything you just come and ask I said if you need to talk anytime I'm there for you as well and then I'd walk away hoping like that I, you know with my little bit of you know a bait that I've left in his door you know and, and the, the fishing rod I'm hoping he's going to come down and lo and behold this guy you know the, the, in the this was the first guy 
he's knocked on my door a, a few days or a time later, I don't know how long. And he's, uh, he's like, Gary, can I have a word with you a minute? Know what you were saying about your other half. Right, this is what's happening with me. And I wondered if you'd be able to listen to, my, like, listen to me, get mine off my chest. So I said, yeah, all right, shut the door and sit on the, like the guest chair was the toilet, you know. You, you sit down there and, yeah, go on, what's the matter? And then he would tell me his one. And most of the time, as you may be well aware from stories on here, most of our problems are fucking easily solved, you know. Um, and not to say that all of them are, you know, there's people trying to deal with fucking tragedy out there. But most of the time, it'd be something that could be easily changed, resolved or dealt with, you know. And uh, he'd tell me this story. And then I'd go, oh, why don't you try writing a letter and that sort of thing? And then he goes away with a little spring in his step. And But the thing is, he's, he reached out to the bloke he was a bit nervous of. <clears throat> he didn't know. And I got it in my head that, that that was his last, you know, his last course of action. If he didn't do that, he could well have been one of the other guys who tried to, like, you know, put a blanket around their neck or a razor through their wrist, you know. And I thought, oh, fucking hell, I've... I could have fucking saved him there, you know. And then all of a sudden that become a, a little bit of a fucking drug on its own. Then all of a sudden I was this fucking knight in shining armour going around chatting to, you know, everyone was getting like a bit bored of me knocking on their door going, all right, I've got a fucking problem here. <clears throat> it wasn't quite like that. But um, I've done it like half a dozen times after mm. and it happened a few times since. And yeah, I, I like to think that that it could have helped, could have helped them, you know, and, and that has given me this interest in mental health from that day then. And that was like the, the mid to late 80s, uh, 90s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just that, that method, it just kind of like ticks so many boxes around the mental health conversation. You know, when you, when you lead by example, when you go first, it yeah. gives other people permission to go first and yeah. just going through, if you, even if you only think you're going through something that the same experience, but just hearing someone else kind of say like, oh yeah, that happens to me too. That's yeah. like so empowering to realize you're not alone. And to, and like you say, as soon as you voice the problem, sometimes problems aren't problems. Yeah. They're just, they're just, we're too caught up in our, in our own head, right. To see the wood for the trees. Yeah. And a lot of the time it's just, we've just made such a fucking tangle of this little ball of string. You know, it started off as a bow and now it's this ball of knots, you know, and, and it's too hard for us to try and untangle them. But what I, I didn't think of this at the time. It's only through talking to people like yourself and, and whomever that have mentioned that the thing that helped as well was the fact that I was quite a prominent figure, deemed to be like a, a, a strong, tough bloke. I'm opening up to someone. I'm showing them that this big, ugly bloke can be vulnerable. And on reflection, maybe they go, Fucking hell, if that big scary bloke can can be, I was going to say weak, but in, in the environment where I was, it was deemed as weak, you know, yeah. to show your emotions. If he can be like that, surely I can. Now, then they know I'm approachable and I sort of owe them one emotionally, you know. So I'm indebted to them. So it's, it's all of those little things that I didn't consider at the time. Um, or I may have considered, but didn't really understand what it was I was considering, you know. And yeah, it worked. And and testament to that is, and I've done that throughout the rest of my sentence, 
occasionally and 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 you get that little the feeling i've got when i created some artwork was the feeling i got when a bloke sort of walked out of my cell and gave me a tap on the shoulder or shook me hand and went thanks mate you know and, and it was like fucking hell and, and it's the same sort of thing and then i come out of a gallery in the east end once this is like on, upon release about maybe i don't know four or five years ago come out of the gallery working my way to liverpool street and I've, across the road, I've heard, Gary, Gary. And like most of the time when I hear my name being shouted, I just ignore it because it was, you know, from my old life, you just wait until a, a few Gary's, you know, just in case it's a fucking copper. But yeah, carrying on. And then I've heard Gary Mansfield. And then I've looked over and I, there's this bloke who's definitely from my old life. You know, he's bounding across the road, you know, his arms going everywhere, got a fucking joint on the go, you know. And uh, I've just like smiled and went, all right, how are you? You know, he obviously knew me. And he went, fucking hell, bruv, you know, how are you? And he's shaking me hand, but he's doing that shake where it was meant, you know, like where people shake with both of their hands, you know? And it was one of those comedic shakes where it just goes on for about 10 seconds too long. And uh, I could see that he was chuffed to see me. So I'm going, all right, mate, how are you? Trying to figure out who he was and where I knew him from. And he went, I've got to thank you, bruv. You went, yeah, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for you. I was in a dark place when you chatted to me that time. And we had that little conversation. He went, and, and you just like said a few things that really connected with me. And I was going to do something silly, you know, or he said I was considering doing something silly, but I didn't do it. And he said, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for you. And he's like, lent in. Is it, I know I'm expecting like music to be playing in the background here, but he sort of, he, his eyes didn't well up, but you could see a little glisten. And, you know, my sort of ego at the time was probably adding on a bit of soft lighting, you know. But he's like, lent in, he's giving me a hug. He went, it's fucking good to see you, mate. And I'd said I'd, I was now an artist. And he was going, oh, you followed your dream. And, you know, because this was like a five minute conversation. And then he went, oh, it's been so good to see you. He's giving me a hug. And he went, oh, I'm so pleased to have bumped into you on the out. And he's gone walking away and he's looked back and he's given me a wave. And I was like, who the fuck was that? Like, who was he? I didn't, and only because he mentioned Swellside, like the prison, I knew at what era I'd bumped into him, you know, of my prison life, but not a fucking clue. And I felt really guilty for that, that I didn't, because it felt like I was a fake, that I weren't doing it. Because I, I questioned at the time, was I doing it for him or was I doing it for me to get this little buzz? And I'd questioned that for a couple of years until I was speaking to someone who, who knew about, you know, psychology and that's, and they was going, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The situation was the same, you know, you done something good for someone who needed it at the time. And, you know, really you needed to feed yourself that bit as well, you know, to get you through. And I was like, yeah, I, I suppose so. And then now when I look back at it, I quite like the fact I don't know who he is because that makes me feel like I'm genuinely a caring person. Even when I was deemed a bad person by society, there was a good person in there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it could have so easily have gone the other way and me coming out being a complete fucking lunatic still, you know, and being dead or doing a life sentence with, uh, you know, to Sid and the other guy under me belt, you know, yeah. or under me patio even. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, that's such a lovely story. Such a lovely story. And it just goes to show, you know, you go out and just do a, you know, 
in a moment as a relatively small thing it seems like in a moment a relatively small thing and the difference it can make yeah and if even if you hadn't bumped into him he's out there and you've still made that difference yeah and he's just out there and there's something so nice about that you know and it just goes to show like as as humans if we can kind of well you mentioned the word empathy or you know earlier on and we can if just have that kind of understanding for each other and just just reaching out right can make yeah. all the well, difference I've, I've in the done, world. what i've done what i do now on a regular basis and i've even meant that i've got children who are 15 and 18 i've said to them for years like just say something nice to a stranger every now and then but you know i mean i remember walking across i can't remember what bridge it was in london and someone was just stood there, just looking out, probably at the sunset, at the lovely view. But because I've been in that situation myself, thinking, how can I end all of this bollocks that's going on in my nut, you know? Then little, all of a sudden you have this little mental fire alarm going off and like, oh, they're going to fucking jump, they're going to jump. And it, then, and I've done this, you know, I mean, this is one occasion I've done this, just stop next to someone, I go, and it's a fucking beautiful view. And they go, oh, what, what? You know, and she's like, looked at me as, you know, because these strangers just stood next to her. And I go, I love it when the sun hits that bit and blah, blah, blah. And, and then they look around and smile at me. They was probably looking at the view. But if it was one in that, I don't know, several million who was contemplating going over, I'm well aware that sometimes it just takes a stranger giving you a smile, saying something nice that can make you go, maybe tomorrow. Yeah, you know, maybe not today. And I'm not saying she was, and I'm not trying to say that I go around with this fucking mental health cape on, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't do that by any means. But when, when you get them little alarms going off, it don't take anything to give someone a fucking smile and a hello, how are you to a stranger, you know? Yeah. And there's something really nice about that, isn't there? There's yeah. something really nice about that way of, of kind of looking at life outside of yourself. Rather, because yeah. we all go round, don't we, in a rat race, all thinking about us, everything's about us, yeah. woe is me, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, doing something nice for other people. Yeah. And like you say, it makes you feel good about yourself as well. And that's yeah. important because if you've got low self-worth or if you're worried that you might be something, you know, you can't be rubbish if you're doing yeah. a little nice thing for other people. You yeah. can't be. like. I mean, sometimes you know, I might just go, oh, fuck off, mate. And you go, oh, fair enough. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's absolutely warranted. You know, yeah. you're absolutely right. I shouldn't intrude. Yeah, but, you know that's that comes with it, doesn't it? You'll, you know? you'll take that, take that yeah, as well. You know, take that yeah, as well. Yeah, like being nosy in the first place, doesn't it, <laughs> mate? I just wanted to. I'm really conscious of your time, mate. But I just wanted to. I'm, ask, I'm fine. You, I'll, I'll wrap it on. You know, oh, whatever. But superb. I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about your artwork, and it's something that I've um, you've mentioned before. In because I listen to your podcast, and I've listened to you on other podcasts, and you mentioned the a lot of your work is kind of like around. The, the words identity empathy and time they're like yeah. the three words that that crop up and you know the empathy and identity in particular are words that come up a lot on this podcast as soon yeah. as i heard you mention them i was like i was i was i was straight on them and is that something that is that like a creative part of your your brain is that something that can be explained or like what what do those words mean to you gary well the i it all start when i started when I discovered what it was that was featured in all of my artwork, because before I was just making art that felt good for me and I couldn't really explain why I was making it, but anything creative, you just have this sort of subconscious urge to create it. And then you've got to sort of catch up consciously with what it is you've just made and try and explain it to yourself. And when you're a creative and you're creating a lot, 
you have to step things up and think a bit quicker, right? But I'm making all of this artwork, and I knew it was all decent. You know, I'm not, I'm not blowing me on trumpet, but it was, it was decent artwork. The ideas were good. You know, I'm, a, I'm more of a conceptual artist, so mine's more about the idea than the finished product, right? So with mine, the finished product is pretty much a 3D representation of what I'm trying to say, the idea, the concept in my head. And I was, I, I, I was making all of this work that was quite strong, but it, it didn't all come in anywhere until I discovered that a lot of it was trying to be, a lot of it was showing empathy and it was trying to make other people look at my work and go, or, or, and change their mind about something, normally about people in prison or the marginalised people who are in a situation that's, that, that they've got no control over, really, be it homeless, whatever, whatever, you know, many, many different, many different things. And I saw that empathy was there and identity was there, a lot of it as well. And because I've done a lot of, you know, self-reflection, identity is a big thing because I went into prison, one person, come out a very different person. And the thing is, I had no help from anyone within the prison system. You know, the, the cons around me I did, but I pretty much done it on my own and I don't know how I done it. And I've, I realized there was a vast change in my identity and I wish I would have been more conscious and took note of what things were working, what didn't, because whatever I've done has, has worked, right? And I'm well aware that there's little things, like I was saying to you there about writing the letter and doing this, doing that. There's little fucking nuggets that if you give this nugget to someone, it could change the way they think about things. And you don't have to try and change someone's life. But if you just change the way they think about one thing, which is what visual art does, you know, it makes you, a lot of the time, the visual art will make you look at something from a slightly different angle, you know. And you go, oh, I've never thought of that before. Whether it be a song, a, you know, a, a, a picture, a painting, you know, what have you. You look at it and go, oh, I see that now. You know, it makes you realise things or look at things from a different angle, which is what I try to do. And as I say, it only takes one little thing to turn you away and think differently. And once you think differently, you put that subject on a whole different track for them people, is how I see it. So we've got the worst culture one of the worst cultures in Europe, possibly even the fucking world, about prisoners. Lock them up, throw away the key. That is the, you know, we've been doing that for several hundred years and the prison population is, you know, over 80,000. That doesn't work. In Holland or in the Netherlands, they're shutting their prisons down because they haven't got enough fucking people to put in them. So whatever it is they're doing has got to work better than what we're doing. And with the right-wing attitude we have over it, and I'm, I'm not highly political, you know, and I know I just used right-wing, but that is an unempathetical look, you know. Lock them up, throw away the key. Oh, they should get a job, come out, and they should do this. Telling people how to live their life. Well, look, you've seen it, as me saying I'm not political, you've seen it just recently. You know, you've got the right-wing politicians, conservative politicians saying, well, just work harder, and uh, or, or get a better job, you know, do more hours, get a better job, or, you know, eat your nutritious meal for 30 pence a day. Those people can go and fuck themselves, you know. That doesn't work, you know. What does work is to have a little bit of fucking care about someone, like going into that prison cell. Although it was a little bit of fake care, they didn't know that at the time. When you 
give a little bit of fucking light or warmth to someone, that can save their fucking life. It's like giving a blanket or a sandwich to a homeless guy, you know. Just a little bit of care can make people feel good about themselves. Once they start feeling positive about themselves, then positive things fucking happen. You know, if you're feeling dark about yourself, everything's got a shadow over it, you know. And I was well aware of that. <clears throat> so that's what I try and do in my artwork. It used to be about me. Then it was about people in prison. And I was trying to say something and I didn't quite understand what I was trying to say. Now I've got to a point, and I'm not saying this is right because it may well evolve and change into something else further down the line. But now I think the most important people for me to connect with in society isn't the nice people, the understanding people, because they're going to like it what I make anyway, because they're already on side with me. What I need is those horrible, like them people I just mentioned, them conservative MPs who couldn't give a fuck about anyone, telling them to go and get a job, eat a 30 pence nutritious meal, or work longer out, you know, go and get a fourth job because you're only doing three. They're the people that you need to sort of tweak a little bit, you know, because if we get the people who are holding the prison system back and, and every, and I'm just talking about prison system because that's my main area, but you know, it's, they've got that attitude against homeless people about single mums, you know, about fucking Muslims that people have got, a, you know, the wrong attitude about so many different areas of people and it's just making everyone else's life harder. So like I made a, a piece a while ago, sorry to, to bang on here without, you know, coming up for breath. Oh, mate, no, it's amazing. But I made an artwork about just over a year ago. There's a, there's a gallery called the Skip Gallery, who I was lucky enough to be invited onto. They asked prestigious or well-known artists to do uh, an artwork in a skip. And that's pretty much all it is, you know, and it's, it's a good, fun, it's an easy way for people who aren't into art to enjoy art, you know, people who are scared of going into a gallery and that sort of thing. This one's out in the street, it's a, it's a skip, and they make something big or whatever to go into it. So while I was in jail, I had an idea of getting a skip and building a prison cell in it, not quite understanding what I wanted, but I knew that a cell was possibly about the same size as a skip. So when I spoke to the skip gallery on my podcast, my art podcast, um, I said to them about, I had an idea about a skip when I was in jail. And they went, oh, maybe we could look at this, come up with a few ideas, send it to us. And if we think it's good enough, if you like, you know, we'll, we'll look at, they didn't say that. They said, well, we'll have a look at it and we'll get back to you. So I was doing a little bit of research and I looked up the size of skips because, you know, as you know, there's a four yard or meter, or, you know, and they go up four, six, eight, ten. I just wanted one that would be on your drive that we're all sort of well aware of rather than one of the great big things. And I've got some sizes of, of skips, various, you know, size skips. Then I looked on the government website to find out the average size of a prison cell. Now, the two that they showed, we've got prison cells and prisons are called stock in the UK, in, in their area. It's called the prison stock. And we've got two types of prison. We've got Victorian prisons, that are, well, I was going to name prisons, but they're Victorian, you know. They was built for one person in the Victorian era. Dare I say it, beautiful old buildings. And then you've got the modern ones, which go more down the penitentiary line. And they're square, they're a bit more secure, they're quite ugly buildings. But that's the two types we've got. And the cells are very different. Well, 
the Victorian one was the dimensions were 1.8 meters by 3.5 meters. And then I went back to have a look at these skips and I think it was the six yard skip was 1.8 meters by 3.5 meters. Um, I couldn't have fucking asked for it any better. And I was like, oh my <laughs> God, now I can build this cell. So I, I contacted a prison and, and you give a bit of spiel to a prison and they will try to help you and try to accommodate. So I wrote to a few prisons that were in the London area. Have you got a broken table that I could have? An authentic prison table or two. And this is the list I want. I wanted two tables, two they call them wardrobes. They're like a tall cupboard, maybe four feet high that you just hang like four T-shirts in or something. Um, so I wanted two tables, two wardrobes, a bunk bed, which I've already got a prison bunk bed. I've had it for a while and a few other bits and pieces. And then I thought, well, rather than just build that in, on a skip, I'm just going to take this actual diagram that I've seen online, which is a diagram of a prison, a Victorian prison cell. So it had like a rectangle with bunk bed writ on it and a square with wardrobe and another square with, or two, two squares with wardrobe, two squares with table. Then it had the toilet, a sort of, if you can imagine a triangle of the door showing it was open, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then there was a sink, you know, that sort of thing. So I thought, I'm just going to put the fucking diagram on there. So I literally boarded out the top of this skip. And on one side it had, 3.5 meters on the front it had 1.8 meters and then I've made the bed as a flat bit of wood and just laid it on there so it looked like from the sky it would have looked like this diagram you was looking at but when you're approaching it it's a skip with some colorful bits on the top and you look and you go oh it's a, it looks like it well you figure it's a prison cell and I put a bit of information next to it now, this is the thing that I discovered while I was making this, because I, my idea was I just want to go, I want people to look at a skip and go, well, I've got one of them outside my house or my neighbour has, and I want them to look at it and go and, and read the information I've put next to it about how we put two people, two adults, in one of these prison cells, right? And I'm not arguing they deserve to be in prison, the, the guys. You know, I'm not saying that, but they're in, in this prison cell that, equates to 6.3 square meters, which is an average bathroom, you know, um, two adults. So I wanted people to go over and go, fucking hell, we put two adults in that skip. And then every time they're walking down the street, hoping that tomorrow or next week or next month, they might see a skip and possibly even one in every 10 times go, we put two people in one of those as a society. That ain't right. But then when I was looking at this online, before I made it, I thought, I wonder how much room we have to give animals. You know, how much does a sheep need when it's being transported, for instance? How much does a cow need? And then I was thinking of things that are roughly our size, like a pig, you know, for instance, bodily size. And then I found this government website that did give these areas. And the one I found, and the one that worked I thought the best was a dog. So if a dog weighing 55 kilos or above, so that's like uh, a large Alsatian, a Rottweiler, you know, one of those big dogs. Yeah, yeah. If they're being held for procedure, they need eight square meters. One dog, eight square meters. Wow. And that that's just with a bed in the corner and they're, so they've got loads of room to walk around. 
two adults have to have 6.3 square meters. And in that area, they've got a table and a desk with possibly 14, 18 inches in between. Yeah. And then I finished it off by saying, and oh, because I made the skip and then I put a bit of tape on the floor to show how much a dog needs or how much more a dog. And as much as we're all dog lovers, let's get it right. This is two fucking humans. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're trying to sort of who we want to be decent people when they yeah, come trying out. to rehabilitate. Exactly. Yeah. So the little thing I finished with on there is how are we supposed to rehabilitate these members of society when we treat them worse than a dog? And you can't argue it. You, you can't. cannot argue it. It just so happens that there's legislation there to say that two, and sometimes even three people can be in one of these cells. Wow. And again, I'm not trying to say that they don't deserve to be there and look at these poor prisoners, but just saying that a dog needs this, two adults get that. Can't be right, can it? It can't no, be right. Not at all. And you know, as soon as you mentioned there, as soon as you said like two people, I thought every time I see a skip, I'm going to think of that. Yeah. Like before you said that that's what you wanted to, you know, the response to be like, that's, that's really powerful imagery, right? That's really, uh, well, it, it gets I, people I was thinking. chuffed with it. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was chuffed with it and it's gone down very well. And yeah, I had loads of emails about it and other artists pulling me over, telling me how good it was. And that little bit of tap on the back and reassurance that I'm not this, you know, cause we've all got that little bit of uh, imposter syndrome wherever we are, you know, yeah. And yeah, being tapped on the shoulder, telling, being told that how good something is, yeah, that sort of knocks away at that imposter syndrome a little bit, doesn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Sometimes you got to that voice in your head. You got to prove it wrong. Whether yeah. it's an imposter syndrome voice, an anxiety voice, it's a, a negative voice. You just got to prove it wrong with your actions, yeah. right? Yeah. And most of the time, that voice is wrong because you know he or she is a bit of a prick. Yeah. <laughs> 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 very much so always trying very to bring you so. down that voice oh no yeah it just gets in the way doesn't it it gets does in the way. oh mate i enjoyed that immensely gary i'm so it's good fun wasn't it? so glad that we could make that happen mate. and Thank i'm so much I'm, I'm well aware that i i rab it on a bit i'm like a i'm like a diesel engine once you get it going it sort of goes on forever oh mate i love it i loved every every word of it i always say the the less of me in a podcast is like how good the podcast is. If you listen and there's oh, lots and there's lots of me, then yeah. it's one that's not gone very well, right? So um, anyone out there, honestly, just try something crafty. I, I don't mean crafty. <laughs> I don't mean go and do a bit of shoplifting. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean <laughs> if you're not into art, just crack onto YouTube and just put craft. Because honestly, if you've got a couple of hours to spare and you get into something that it, it doesn't have to, the end result doesn't matter. It's the doing, it's the, it's the sort of procedure. And honestly, it takes you in, you leave your world for a moment. You know, it is like time travel because that two hours that you had to fill with doing a bit of whatever, drawing, crayons, matchstick making, that, go, that two hours goes in five minutes, you know, and, and you get a little something out of it. There's nothing negative about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's art therapy. Just have a go. Even go and look at it. Go and read about it. Yeah. Is that common? anything creative. Yeah, it's that common misconception, isn't it? That one, if you're creating something that it actually like has to be like good by some standard that, that probably doesn't even exist. And two, that it has to, um, and this is like irony in itself, that it has to fit that box of like art, music or written word. Yeah. You know, like, but creativity, we're naturally, we're innately creative 
beings. And I firmly believe when that part of our brain isn't able to just run wild and yeah. society stops that, doesn't it? Society makes us think that we can't yeah, do Well, anything. the thing is, I went and give a talk in a prison just on two days ago, Tuesday. Is today, what's today? Thursday today. Right, right so, yeah, sorry. Two days, yeah, see, I'm saying about how time flies. Two days ago, I was, I was in a, um, a prison up in Staffordshire giving a, a talk about art. And I was getting the guys to, or we were getting the guys to show us their artwork and doing like a little crit session, giving them positive and constructive, oh, I was going to say negative feedback, constructive feedback. And one of the guys was going on about this sculpture that he'd made. And it was a good sculpture. And he'd made it out of this drying clay, that like air drying clay. And he didn't like the base. He went, the base, he went, the thing that's really screwing me. And you could see that it was affecting him. He went, I've worked so hard on this. And I'm aware that it looks good, but the base looks so amateur. I fucking hate it. And I went, well, how long have you been a professional artist? And he went, I'm not. I went, exactly, you're a fucking amateur. That's why it looks amateur. So the base is at your level. The rest of it is far better than you was expecting. That yeah. was his, his, and he went, oh yeah, I suppose so. So now the base has become positive because that's his standard, if you like. The rest of it is fucking way above where it should have been. Yeah. And that's all he had to do was just flip that around. And then a few of the other blokes laughed at the time when I said that, because I, I speak like this when I'm, when I'm giving this crit, you know, it's, it's honest, it's me. And yeah, a few of them laughed and they, they've started looking at their artwork in a different way because we've got so many fucking big ex expectations, especially in this world we're living at now when, you know, everyone online, the girls all look beautiful and the lads have all got abs, you know, it's a fucking world we can't compete in. You know, that, that you shouldn't have to climb because it's all fucking fake. Our expectations are so high of ourselves. And and so we're sort of gearing ourselves up for failure before we even start. But yeah, if you can look at yourself honestly, or your artwork, because it's a representation of you, I feel, if you can look at your artwork and go, that's all right, that's all right, that's really good. That bit needs improvement. I can rub that out and start again just like life have a little look at yourself say yeah i'm doing well in this area well in that area that can crack on on its own i'm doing all right there these areas here that needs rubbing out and redoing you know redrawing you know just crack on with it rub it out draw it and go and again see if it comes out any better it yeah. ain't gonna do it on its own you know no that's it it's a lovely metaphor right because it's so so many of these things are about the journey yeah. Like it's not, we always focus on the end product, but quite often on the path towards that, you end up going off on a way you would never have predicted. Yeah. That's where the magic happens, right? That's where you find whatever it is you need to find. But if you don't start, you'll never stumble off the path yeah. and you're never going to find it. And that's I like, see. I mean, you know, that's a very cliched little, uh, <laughs> little no, man, thing, we, but... wait, you've got then cliches. That's just a name that's attached to something that's true. That's it. You know? That's it. It's a cliche for a reason, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh mate, thank you so so much. That was um that was wonderful. It was great to meet you, mate. Thank you. Oh, for and you, on. Tom. Thank you very much, mate. To big up to the proper mental podcast. A podcast, a proper mental podcast. <laughs>